Yep. What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. Welcome back, Nightmare Success, in and out listeners. What we are here. And I want to say I, I'm really excited to get into this interview because um, Seth Ferrante, uh, he gave me Stephanie Shepard's name. And if anybody had listened to Seth's uh, episode, it's if you haven't had a chance yet, it's a fantastic uh, journey that he went on, and he's doing great things now. But we were together that one day and says, you've got to talk to Stephanie Shepard. And when we got Stephanie on the phone, um, she was busy at um, doing what she does. And, and uh, she just has such an exciting and interesting story. And it's such a current topic because Stephanie um, received a 10 year sentence for conspiracy to distribute cannabis. And she was a first time nonviolent offender Two-parent suburban household thought going to prison could never happen, could never happen to her. And um, Stephanie says it took her about five years into her sentence to realize that, um, you know, this actually happened. This is no big, you know, there was not somebody made a big mistake that she's really in prison and no one was coming out to save her. And, you know, she wasn't special for this. You know, the there were a whole bunch of other people, women in there whose lives had been turned upside down by incarceration. And Stephanie, she did nine years of a 10-year sentence, which is unbelievable in, in the world that we think about now with, with marijuana and cannabis. Um, she, she got out and she found a, a program. It's called The Last Prisoner Project. And she's using her experience that she went through to help people that are in her position to try to get them out. And as all of you, if you've followed the news lately, Biden, President Biden um, released um, some people in the federal system a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, it's it's for these advocates that are doing the good work to get these people back into our society where, as we know, in so many states that we're in, there's a billion dollar industry going on and it's all legal now with marijuana so Stephanie, welcome in. I am so just uh, thrilled you're here and made that you made time for it, and I can't wait to jump into your story. Thank you, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here, and your intro was perfect, except for just uh, President Biden's pardon didn't release anyone. Ah, that's a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very big difference. But what you said is what a lot of people heard yeah. when that announcement was made. Um, and so I definitely want to always clarify that no one was federally incarcerated for simple possession. Right. So no one was released. These pardons were simply a forgiveness, if you will, of the crime. But 
Nobody and walked out of prison that day. No, right. no, no one's in prison for it. Yeah. So Stephanie, because I, I reading a little bit about your story, um, can you tell us a little bit about growing up as a kid? It sounds like you were, you know, mom, dad, can you tell us how that all little Stephanie was growing up? Yeah. I, I'm the youngest of seven. The, um, the so baby. baby. Yeah. So really thought anything was going to derail me in life. I just always felt protected by my parents and, you know, my older siblings. And so I was kind of that wild child. So it was no big surprise, um, probably to my family, that if any seven of us would go to prison, it would be me. But you never thought that. No, no, no. Unfortunately, though, at the age of 41, I did go to prison. Right. And so let's talk a little bit about like with your world as a kid growing up with a big family. Um, what was your high school and school like? Were you Did you have a group of good friends and were you running with a crowd that you liked? I mean, what was all that like, that world? Very typical high school experience. Um, the only thing is I always couldn't wait to get out. Yeah. I always, I was always raring to go into the world. Mm -hmm. So cannabis was not a part of my childhood growing up with the exception of my brothers who kept like a cigar box under their bed. And I'd always see little papers and little seeds that that was a secret. Uh, it wasn't something that my parents, we're a part of my parents were older. My dad was born in 1919. So that wasn't something that was a part of our family growing up. Um, in fact, I didn't even consume till I was 28 years old. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, what did no. you, what, what was your life like? So you got out of high school. Where did you step into after that? Uh, bounced around to a couple of colleges, yeah. decided that wasn't for me, um, did a couple of stints, worked for the NBA for a little bit, um, sold real estate in New York, which is what I was doing when this all came about. Yeah, I read that. Uh, yeah. So I did lose my real estate license because of the pending felony. So after that just went to prison. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about how, how did that happen? How did that happen to Stephanie Shepard? Who, I mean, seeming like the baby of the family, pretty well adjusted suburban life and walk us into that nightmare that you entered. Um, pretty basic, had an ex-boyfriend, who had gotten arrested for cannabis was in prison for, or was in jail for six months when I got a call from his lawyer and his lawyer said, Hey, you know, can you come down and talk to me? Well, being the ex-girlfriend, mm -hmm. knowing he had an, another girlfriend, I was a little curious, a little nosy, you know, curiosity killed the cat, mm -hmm. but I did go down to find out what was going on. And he said, hey, you know, he has a bad heart. He's had a pacemaker put in. He's not doing well in county. If I can get him out on medical bond, will you give him a place to stay? 
till his sentencing. Let him get healthy, go, you know, get real doctor care. Mm-hmm. And I agreed. So I went into that courtroom six months later. They weren't thinking about me. They knew about me, but they were not thinking about me. Never had been questioned or anything. I walked in that courtroom and answered the judge's questions. And he said, I find this young lady responsible and credible. And I'm going to recommend he be released into her custody. And an hour later, I'm getting a text from the lawyer saying they're going to fight it. They say you're involved. Mm. Wow. The day I was getting dressed to go pick him up, I got a buzz at my buzzer. I was living in Williamsburg, Brooklyn at the time. I got a buzz at my buzzer, and it was a DEA agent and an ICE agent. And they said, we're looking for Stephanie Shepard. We have a warrant for her arrest. And at that point, I just buzzed him up, got arrested, was on pre-trial for a year. We got to stop. Stephanie, we got, I got to know what was going through your mind. I mean, because you've just had a judge say this, this woman who's standing before me is responsible. I'm going to release this person into your care. And the next thing that happens is, is they're buzzing up to say they've got a warrant for your arrest. What, what are you thinking? What's going through your mind? I'm still not believing that it's going to happen. I think I'm going to have some issues. I'm going to have to answer some questions. I never really believed that me would be getting into any serious trouble behind cannabis. Mm -hmm. At at the most, I thought, you know, what can happen? A fine? Mm -hmm. Maybe some type of probation? I don't know. I've never had anything like this in my life before I just sell my real estate and allegedly apparently some weed but I just wasn't believing it I wasn't believing it and uh, as I was on pre-trial for that year and I lost my real estate license and so now I'm in New York which is very expensive I don't have any income uh it was it was tough I'm, I'm weekly drug testing randomly. Um, so once I actually got sentenced to that 10 years and he said, you know, 120 months mm-hmm. and I didn't even know what that was. Like it didn't even like, I, I don't normally talk in months. I don't have any kids. So I don't know the month calculations. And I, my attorney, I was like, what is that? And he just said 10 years. Wow. What, what, what were when he said that, what, what do you, what's your body and mind? How's it reacting? Um, unfortunately my sister who had been through this with me the entire time, because I chose to not share this situation with my parents. I, that's how confident I was. I was like, we'll talk about it after. Mm-hmm. So my two elderly parents, I didn't want to know I was in this trouble. So all my brothers and sisters knew, but it was kind of that sibling secret. Mm-hmm. My sister came to the courtroom that day. She flew from California. And when they announced the amount of time when the judge said 120 months, I just remember my sister screaming, Mm. just screaming. And 
I just turned to her and I wanted her to feel better. So I smiled. It's okay. It's going to be okay. We'll, we'll work it out. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Calm down. And I'm smiling. And they take me back behind the doors. And that's when I scream. Mm. What a day. I mean, that's that was just, a day. it's just, it's just so much, um, you know, I, when I think about that, I mean, it, it brings like the hair stands up on my arms when you're telling that. Cause I think I made out an audible, just all the breath left me when they said five years, you know, cause in 10 years is double that. And it's a, it's a decade, you know, it's, it's not a few months, you know, and you get back into society, it is life changing. And for you at, what were you 41? You said, yeah. And, um, what happened next? Cause you, you were taken from that courtroom. Uh, it takes a while to, once you're sentenced to, uh, be put in to where you're going. So did you spend that time? Well, there was, jail? there was a month between, um, my actual arrest when I was remanded from the courtroom, when I was found guilty and my sentencing. Okay. So there was like, actually three months and then after that um you go to a holding facility for a month before you're actually sent to the prison that you're assigned to so uh mdc brooklyn mcc um did those before i got to danbury how was that for your world of adjustment it was rough it was i remember just being led, there's a tunnel that goes from the courtroom directly to the jail. And there's a smell that uh, walking through that tunnel, anytime I smell something similar to that, it takes me back to that tunnel. Mm. Um, it's kind of a, a, usually when I'm at a gas station, it's kind of an exhaust fumes. I, I just, it sticks in my brain. Mm walking through there and still having that mentality of this has got to be a mistake. This is not happening. Immediately. I should have changed my mindset, but my mindset was still on the street. So I almost had like a Karen esque way about me. You know, I want to speak to your supervisor. Mm-hmm. Why are you throwing my stuff? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't even realize that this is, serious and once um i i got upstairs and cried and was in my bed i got woke up at five in the morning by the by the supervisor of the floor and she said the people downstairs told me you were rude and i it's five in the morning i am don't even know where i am at this point and i'm getting this lecture about my attitude to to the people downstairs. So that was really just the beginning of lesson after lesson after lesson, getting me to that five point five year mark where I really realized I'm here and this is my reality. This is your world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So Stephanie, when you finally get to, um, I think, did you first go to Danbury? Mm-hmm. When you walk in there, what's, can you walk us through your, walk us inside there your first day, how you were accepted in and what you kind of dealt with, how you got into the prison world? Because it's the unknown. You know, you, you're in jail. Now you're going to something. And I think the difference with that is, is that when you enter into the prison world, you know that this isn't me going to be here for a day or two. This is me setting up my new life. And I think that is a mindset adjustment too, is that, you know, you know, whether it's three, five, 10, that this is going to be where I remember the night before I voluntarily surrendered and we drove and the sun was going down and I saw the guys walk in the fence and I could see inside the prison, like guys like around the bunk beds and stuff. And I was thinking, I didn't say anything to Julie, my wife, but I was thinking, Oh my God, tomorrow night, that's going to be me in there. That's my world. My world changes from out here looking in wondering what they're doing to actually being in that world. And it was such a strange thought process because I didn't know that world at all. I could, I was only viewing it from the outside. So then when you enter into it, how, how did it feel for you entering? Cause you almost feel like you get prisonized when they process you. Uh, the whole process is very long, very long, drawn out, a lot of waiting, a lot of uncomfortable situations. Um, so by the time I got to Danbury, it was night. It was probably like 11 o'clock at night. Everyone was in bed, compound clothes, dark. And they led me to my room after I got out of R&D and they sent me to my room and you know, anytime anybody new comes, it's exciting. Like people want to see who the new people are and everybody woke up out of their beds. It's like a room with about 12 people sleeping in bunk beds. And the first two people who started asking me questions looked like two gentlemen. And I just started crying. I said, I thought this was a women's prison. I was so green in what I was about to experience in my life. So that first night was tough. I think I went to the shoe like my first week, you know, uh, getting into it with some lady, but each experience really taught me something. And I can definitely say I came out much more humble, mm-hmm. much more humble than I went in. And that can only be a plus. Mm-hmm. Um, more empathetic. Yes. Because I never thought this would be me. Mm-hmm. When you get in and you are stripped of everything, your nice clothes or your makeup or whatever. And you get in and you get stripped of all that. Then you have to start dealing with just the real simple you. Yes. And that's a teaching thing. That's, that's something you can learn by. And as much as I laugh about my, my stint as a mentor in RDAP, the residential drug abuse program, uh, things there whether I want to to say I did or not 
Uh, did I feel like I needed a drug program because I consumed cannabis prior to my incarceration? No. But did I take what I could get from the experience and use it today? Sure, I do. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, that program is all about rational thinking, how you handle situations, how you deal with something when it's in front of you. So there, there's some there's some things in there that really uh, I think you can use. I think it's interesting how you say about the, the things that it taught you, humbling yourself. I don't know that you can humble anybody more than taking them and taking your freedom and, and being in a, in a society that does not have freedom. And you're told, you know, when you can go, what you can do, how you can do it. And then you have to create a world in that. And it, it is so humbling. And I think the other thing that you brought up, Stephanie, about being empathetic, um, there's, there's something about, you know, when you are in and then you get out, you don't react to people the same way. You know, you really try to understand who that person is. You don't take somebody as a book by its cover. You really want to understand what that person is and who that person is and not assume because there's so many people you meet in prison. I, you know, people ask me like, what's the biggest surprise in prison? Um, for me, it was that I met a lot of good people that, um, I lived with and I didn't expect that. That was maybe one of the bigger surprises to me was that people right when I got in helped me and I didn't expect that. I thought from what I'd seen on Netflix and everything else, I was not going to survive the night, but it wasn't like that at all. Um, Getting in there, Stephanie, and and getting a part of it, did you, did you have anybody that, you know, getting into the world of, did you have people that kind of taught you the prison rules and life and, or did you get a good prison job? Like, how did that all work for you while you were in? Because you were there for, and you said you went to five different prisons. I don't know how long you were at Danbury, but how how did you get into the world and make your routine? Um, well, for the most part, your routine is set for you. Mm-hmm. Breakfast is at a certain time. Uh, laundry is at a certain time. So it's pretty much set for you. One thing I was not willing to do was work in the kitchen. I like to cook, but I did not want to work in a kitchen. Um, so, like, my first week there, I got offered a job of an education. Uh, the teacher saw me, met me online or something, and said, you know, do you want to work in education? So I taught ESL for the majority of my time. Mm. Um it was a decent, as far as prison paying jobs go. Yeah. Um, maybe 80 a month. Mm-hmm. That was a big deal. That's, that's high paying. <laughs> yeah, that's high paying. Um, but my thing was not trying to get the highest paying job because they have what's called Unicor there. Mm-hmm. And they tout that as the highest paying job. Well, that's also you working in a factory-like setting, yeah, fulfilling contracts for outside people, right? for pennies. Yes. And I refused to do that. And so I took a job that I felt good about, that fed my soul, which was teaching people English. Um, it was all different kinds of people. People would say, oh, you speak Spanish? And I'm like, well, 
it's not, I'm not teaching a Spanish class. I'm teaching English. And I had all different types of people in there mm-hmm. uh, from all parts of the world who were just eager to learn English. And for certain people, it was required. Um, like people from Puerto Rico, it was a required thing. So I enjoyed doing that. And then my last year, I worked in rec just for fun. <laughs> well, I think I think what you're hitting on, though, is that you don't, my big fear was is losing what made me, me in prison. And I think the world that you got into, you found something that filled you up that you also were giving back. I mean, you're, you're helping people uh, and you weren't, you know, weren't doing something mindless in a factory situation like Unicor, uh, but it felt more like you. And I think, you know, that's a good strategy in any situation is not to lose yourself in a situation, try, try as much as you can to get as much as you can not to lose yourself. And it sounds like to me that that was kind of a connection or escape for you to keep being you. Exactly. Going into obviously education is the nicest building. It was the only building that had air conditioning. Mm-hmm. So I was automatically in, it got very hot there in the summer. Um, let's, talk, let's talk about that my- Stephanie real quick. Cause that's funny to me. Cause you know, Leavenworth didn't have air conditioning either. And did you know that it didn't have air conditioning before you went? I didn't know anything about <laughs> prison before I went. I always thought I didn't know anybody in prison. I was the person <laughs> in prison. I didn't know anyone in prison really. Yeah. I, I just think it's funny on the on the air conditioning thing because people say, How in the world did you do that without air conditioning? And it's funny because you you adapt to that too. You know, we, we kind of figured out because it got I'm hot glad, in Kansas. I'm glad you find that funny because you we haven't even gotten to when I got to Phoenix prison camp. Oh, Phoenix. Yes, that's hot. There. It was like 120 in the summer all night long. No air conditioning there. And we had no air conditioning. Thank God I worked in rec and we had air conditioning. Yeah, see, there you are. <laughs> got to figure it out. So I just spent all my time in the rec office. But they had a funny thing that they did or strange or odd, I guess it should be is that because it got hot is they, the, the inmates had figured out that you open the windows at night, let the cool air in and you close the windows in the day because you don't want it to be a furnace to heat the place up. And it kind of worked. I mean, uh, there were like six or seven days where it was so hot and I can't imagine Arizona. I mean, that to me is like that, that's, that's hot, like the hottest, night of all the nice, but, but you made it, you made that. So that's, that's, I did. I did. So just, um, I was just saying being able to go into an office and sit at a desk, you know, those are all, um, those are all things that connected me to my outside life. Yes. Was the, was the so. desk, had, was the chair, did it have a cushion? Was it, cause it, most yeah, things- it was nice. It was it was education. So it was, yeah. you know, kind of like the crown jewel yeah. of the compound mm-hmm. with the library and, you know, everyone had offices. It was the closest thing to feeling to normal going into. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the, the other part of the prison is, is you've got a plastic chair, a locker and a bunk bed, and that is your world. And if you can find something that feels a little bit more um, home-like, 
uh, comfortable, yeah. that's a big deal. I, I had a job working at the food warehouse where we kind of had our own thing up there and it was, it was a good escape for the day. And then you come back to prison and that was, um, I, I, I only, really relate to what only, you're saying on that. Not only just that kind of escape, but, but everywhere else on the compound, you're surrounded by people. Mm-hmm. There's very few places that you have access to where you can be alone. But working in a classroom, that was my classroom. Yeah. So I could go in there anytime I wanted to prepare lessons or just sit at my desk or read. But that being alone and that time having that, I, that was the most important thing about the job just having that time and that place to go to be alone. Yeah. And I think that's something that, uh, when you think about prison, you, it's, it's the loneliest place that you can be with a lot of people. You know, isn't that strange? You're around people all the time, but you, it's also somewhat lonely because you're, you're in an environment that is, I mean, not, not, I'm trying to think of the word for that, but it's a weird dynamic for the mind. Uh, I know Stephanie, by us talking before we got on that you ended up um, being transferred to different places. Can you kind of describe that? Cause that's one of like the prison nightmares is being, having to transfer yourself into other places when you are a prisoner. Right. Um, transferring, you have to usually go through a transfer center, which is in Oklahoma. Um, that The transfer center is much nicer than the alternative. And sometimes to fulfill a contract they have with the county, they'll send people there. So as you land, you can either go inside this, you know, building that's still up to federal standards, or you get a black X on your hand, which means you go to Grady County. So I did that several times. The first time I was in shock, I thought I was not going to make it. The second and third time I went through there, I at least knew what to expect, so I was prepared. Um, Transferring is... I traveled commercially alone while I was still in in custody. Um, I went from... Uh, I went from Wasika, Minnesota to Phoenix, Arizona. I went from Phoenix, Arizona to Victorville, Victorville to Phoenix. I went to my father's funeral alone. Right. All this while in custody. And the first time I had actually been alone in six years, I was transferring prisons. I was, going on a flight. I had no ID except for my prison ID and a note from the warden Mm -hmm. with like my mug shot on it, explaining who I was just for a little extra insurance if they gave me problems. I've got on gray sweats. I've got a mesh bag. I'm feeling horrible at this airport. Mm -hmm. Absolutely horrible. I'm feeling so out of place. Mm -hmm. Everyone's on their cell phones and dress nice. And here I am just, so I walk up to where I give my ID. I hand her my prison ID. She looks at it. She goes, oh, okay, no problem. 
I'm going to need a supervisor over here. So then the supervisor comes and I have to get extra pat down and I'm just feeling like I want to get back to my captors. Yeah. If that makes any sense. I want to get back to where I feel normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how long have you been in prison? In the free by, world, I was. When six, you were traveling like this. Years, that's yeah. That's a long six time. Years. Yeah. To just throw you out into an airport after, you know, six years of being a, in captivity. <laughs> and I, yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally get that. That's, um, it's a weird, that's a weird thing, isn't it? That that's what you, your mind was thinking is I'm so out of it here. I, I feel so more, uh, normalized in the other environment, but you'd been in that right. environment for six years. And once I got back, I felt better because, oh, everybody's an ugly gray sweat. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got, you know, a mesh bag. Mm-hmm. Nobody's on a cell phone. Yeah. So I didn't feel out of place. But once I got and I thought to myself, is that what it's going to feel like when I get out? Yeah. How long will it feel like that for me once I actually get out? Somebody said on one of the podcasts that, being in prison is like being in black and white and getting out is like life coming back in color because it's just the, the way your mind is and how you're surviving that world. But the place that you, so you went through RDAP. I know that you had an event in your life where your dad had gotten sick and uh, they allowed you or gave you approval to leave, but you, I don't believe that you made that in time, if I'm not mistaken. I right? did not. Yeah, I did not. I was in Victorville prison camp at the time where furloughs were allowed. Um, so when my dad did get sick and it looked like he was not going to make it, I requested to be able to go see him in the hospital. Uh, he was in Sacramento. I was in Victorville. It's an hour flight. Mm-hmm. And they told me, well, if you go see him in the hospital, you're not going to be able to go to the funeral. And I said, I don't want to go to a funeral. I want to go see my father alive. And it took them a week to come to the conclusion that I could go. And that morning is the morning that he passed away. So I did end up traveling alone once again with a large expense to my family to get a a last minute ticket. Um, turnaround ticket um but i i went for my family yeah just to support them because my father was gone by that point so yeah i didn't i didn't really care about that and i did i went to the funeral and i turned right around went right back to the airport got picked up by another inmate at lax we drove through, hit in and out on the way home, yeah, <laughs> on the way good. back. At least you did that. <laughs> what, as, and, as far um, as as far yeah. as attending that service, were you able to dress in normal clothes and 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 my be sister had normalized? clothes ready for me. Okay. Yeah, my sister had clothes ready for me at her house, so we were able to go to her house, stop, change, go to the funeral, um, turn around, and. Head right back to the airport. I had to be back by 11 o'clock that night. Was there any talk along the time that you were in that things were going to change and people were going to get out because of the kind of charge you had? Or or had you decided that that wasn't going to happen for you? There wasn't really a lot of talk about it. Um, 
there would there would be talk about different things that were getting people out, like when Obama did a bunch of clemencies, mm-hmm. um, but that was for crack. Mm-hmm. Um, there was never any talk about cannabis specifically. So once I started to see what the industry was turning into outside while I sat inside with other people doing the same thing, but there's people on TV talking about how the industry's booming and it's legalizing state after state. But I didn't know of anything like the last prisoner project mm-hmm. because they were just getting started. So I didn't, I felt like I'm just going to do this time. I never thought there was going to be help for me. The great thing about what we do now at last prisoner project is letting people know they don't have to feel like that. Mm-hmm. There are people outside here working for their freedom. And that's got to feel better than what I experienced. Absolutely. I'd I'd much rather know somebody's coming for me on a desert island than not, you know? Well, there's an old uh, quote that says, don't ever take somebody's hope away because that might be all they have. And Mm -hmm. let's, let's talk about, because of the amount of time that you were in, you started getting close to the door and a lot of prisoners get kind of weirded out. And I, you know, I've saw in my world, there were people that would then catch another charge because they were scared to get out. They, they had gotten so used to the ugly prison world. That was their comfort. And then freedom was scary. Um, how did you start to feel once you knew, wow, I'm only six months away or eight months away. How, what, what was going on in your world and your thinking? Like what's what am I gonna what's that world gonna be for me when I get it? What was what was going through your mind? The entire time of my incarceration, I thought, oh, I don't know why these people are acting weird about going home. I can't wait to go home. I have a great life at home. But the closer it got to that time, after learning all that I had mm-hmm. over that time, I got scared because I'm a different person now. I don't have the same life outside. So I started to get nervous. Even though I know what I'm capable of, I still felt beaten down. You know, my self-esteem had taken a beating being in prison and being talked to a certain way and treated a certain way. And I was scared. Um, Getting out, I didn't know how I was going to feel. And when I got out, the pandemic hit soon after. Right. Well, let's talk about the day you got oh. out because that, that had to be that had to be a great ex- just feeling. Let's. I always say it's like Christmas is a little kid that times it by a million. What What was that day like for you, Stephanie? You finally had made it to the door. You sign all these papers. You have no idea what those papers are. You just know that you want to leave, um, and you walk out. What do you walk out to? Well, prior to that, I spent my last month in county. <laughs> do tell <sighs> my bunkie and I and something happened and then I it basically I got accused of bullying my snoring bunkie and the SIS person he actually snores and took it very very offensively so I he sent me to county and all I wanted to know, because I knew at this point I could do time anywhere. Yeah. I don't care. Am I still going home on February 6th? Yeah. That's all I want to know. Because I did RDAP, it's possible that that time could have been taken away. The program could have scary. been taken away. That's very scary. Because it's a scary. whole time period of that you could be 
put back a on year. the books. Yes, a whole year. So I was very scared. But once I found out that they were not going to take my program um, and that I would come back the night before I left. So I came back from county the night before I left, and I did not care one bit about doing that time in county. As long as I knew I was walking out those doors on February 6th, which I did, my sister had sent me clothes, mm-hmm. um, first time wearing real clothes in in many years. Yeah. Um, That's a great feeling. So it, it was exciting. And then they took me to uh, a bunch of us, there was three of us getting out. Another inmate drove us to the bus station. Um then, you know, then it's up to you. They put this weird thing is if you have money on your account, they give you a card with your money on the account, but you can't activate the card without a phone. Mm. But you have to have a phone to activate the card, but you need the money off the card to get the phone. <laughs> so I'm standing in Walmart trying to figure out who can I ask to use their phone? Who's going to let some chick wandering around the Walmart parking lot <laughs> use their phone? And I saw a brother and I explained to him my situation. He said he had family who had just gotten out. He knows what it's like. He helped me get my uh, card activated. I was able to get a phone, talk to my parents, uh, get to the halfway house, stayed at the halfway house for a month, and then came home on home confinement. Wow. Wow. It's a lot. It is. Brent, it's a lot. <laughs> it it's so a lot. I could go on and on and on. It's so many layers to the experience, which is why it's so important for me to fight for those people and end this experience, end this nightmare for them, get them back home to their families. Well, talk about Stephanie, because it's not easy to get back out into society. I mean, it's, you know, we were just talking about this before you came on. There's so many people go back. Um, you know, the fight is to, to be doing something that keeps you, um, engaged and going forward. What, how did you get back into the world? Um, just working, uh, with the last prisoner project, um, working with the last prisoner project and getting to know the constituents, families and, knowing that I'm doing something on a daily basis to further the possibility of them coming home sooner, the Kevin Allen's who are doing life, the Parker Coleman's who are doing 60 years mm-hmm. for the same thing that I could go several different places within a two mile radius and purchase and consume and people not be worried about getting arrested. Can you explain a little so, bit about, you know, I know you came to the last prisoner project, you got, you got started in it and then you became part of it uh, full time. Can you just kind of explain how the last prisoner project works? Cause I wasn't aware of it until Seth uh, started talking to me about it. And then we met just all the different things that you guys are doing. Okay. Really quickly. Um, Last Prisoner Project, we work for the release, we work for policy change, we work for reentry services, ultimately expungement, um, anything just to help those who have been negatively impacted. Um, we give out reentry grants to those who have been recently released for cannabis charges. Uh, we match them up, up with pro bono attorneys to help with 
compassionate release and clemency filings. Um, we just tried to look at what the needs are and fill those needs. You know, what's the first thing? Uh, people need money when they get out. Right. Everybody doesn't have support. So we do a lot of partnerships. We work with a lot of different brands or dispensaries, um, people in the industry, people out of the industry, honestly, regular people who understand that privilege to be able to walk into a beautiful dispensary and consume. Um, so all of these people help us do the work that we do. So through donations and partnerships, um, we're able to do a lot of really good work. That's great. And I, I mean, being able to use your experience and affect people's lives, uh, hopefully, you know, affect it in a way that can be something that you weren't able to have when you were going through everything that you went through, but to be able to use all that experience that you gained. And, you know, I have always said that it's so important to have people like you at the table. You know, it's great. It's great to have people who are advocates and they think this is unfair, but I think it's even more important to have people who've actually lived it, experienced it, felt it. And when they're at the table, I think more can get done because of, of the passion of what you know, the experience of what you know, and how, how that can really truly affect people. And, and I think there's nothing to replace that. And I'm not saying that the other advocates are not effective and shouldn't be at the table, but having somebody at the table that has that world experience of, of really living it is um, it's a difference maker, I think. And I, I hope, you know, from what you're doing, Stephanie, that there's more people that become part of it. I think the other thing that's interesting is, is that you can't get into the cannabis world. You know, right. it doesn't matter if California or Colorado or all 50 states decide to make it legal. It's a federal law that it's illegal. And right. we're, once you're a federal uh, convicted felon, you have that to deal with. So, and you also, right. have the, you also have the issues of like, um, you know, you're in a situation where uh, in California, uh, getting your license back as a real estate agent, you're a convicted felon now. There's a lot of real estate agents that are smoking marijuana and, and, and going in the, in the state is selling marijuana. But you deal with a whole different brand of being branded as an ex-felon. So you have to take extra steps if you even want to get back into that market because it's it's a case-by-case basis. So you you just don't walk in and get licensed again. You have to carry that with you. And no. that's, a, yeah. that's something that I find is a common theme of people who make it is that they uh, know that they've got to grit it up a little extra because they're going to be asked those questions. You even talked about when you got your – your job at um, the coffee shop that you, you had to fight for that. You know, they, they weren't, yeah. just, they weren't just going to give it to you. you. You, I'm sure you looked very, I mean, I'm sure you interviewed well. I mean, you interview well on a podcast, but that doesn't mean they're going to just give you a job. You had to fight for that. So everything you do when you get out, um, getting out is wonderful. It's a, it's a fantastic thing, but staying out is you have to fight for it. And, and I think where you're at right now is so incredibly cool that you're in this place last prisoner project and you know everything about it and you've lived it and you can you can take people's um experience and give them hope that they've got something to look forward there's maybe a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel i i think um you know 
Did you ever have, I meant to ask you this, did you ever have like a rock bottom moment for yourself? Because I know it had to be a little bit weird for you getting out of prison and then going into COVID. Like COVID, um, COVID was a lockdown no, for this was, world and you're kind of getting out it of prison. It was, but I was used to being locked up Down. in a small space, you know. This was me locked up in my bedroom yeah. um, with a, a TV and comfortable bed and a kitchen within steps away if I want to make whatever I want to eat. Yeah. So it felt like the best version of the life I had already been living. Yeah. So we'll have to go into like a part two because <laughs> I have to jump. <laughs> But that's good, though. I mean, that, that that's a really good way of putting that because everybody got into a lockdown. The first time in our whole history of our world, everybody in, in the world got locked down and couldn't do what they wanted to do, couldn't be where they wanted to be. And uh, you walked out of prison and, and kind of fell into 2020 and things were different. But like you said, it wasn't as bad as where you were in prison. Right. So, Stephanie, you know, looking. Oh. Go ahead have to do it we're gonna have to do part two because i have to jump <laughs> oh you do well do, do let's let's just one question after everything that you've been okay. through what do you think's your biggest takeaway um after everything that i've been through the biggest takeaway would have to be that it's not over yeah. It's not over until these people who are sitting where I was sitting just three short years ago yeah. are home and moving on with my life the way I'm trying to do today. So it's not over until then. I love it. So. Stephanie, thanks so much. I'm going to finish up here and uh, give everybody the information. Um, thanks for being my guest. So much appreciate it. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. For everybody. Bye-bye. Uh, out there looking for um, a book, uh, I wrote one, Nightmare Success In and Out. Uh, you can get it at Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can get it at Amazon. Uh, if you want to, I'd love it if you could leave me a, uh, a review on Apple. Uh, you just go up to the top there and, and you scroll down to the bottom of the page where you see the reviews. Click on Write a Review. I love that. It really helps the show. If you want to send me a message or find out anything going on with Brent Cassidy, go to brentcassidy.com. Leave me a message. Uh, appreciate everybody being here. Stephanie, thank you so much. As I used to say when I was typing my emails back in prison, stay strong and I'll do the same. Nightmare in and out. Thanks, folks. <laughs>